what I wanted to focus upon, as well as of Adrian's um, very kind uh, request for me to speak today, is the link between Brexit and globalisation, and whether it means a reversal of globalisation. And Frank has been talking about, about free trade. I think sometimes Brexiteers um, imagine that leaving the European Union uh, looks as if we're turning away from a narrow trade block or customs union uh, in favour of trading with the whole world, almost back to that, that world of free trade that Frank was talking about. And after the, the Second World War, when the uh, Roosevelt then Truman administration were negotiating the post-war institutions of uh, Bretton Woods and GATT, um, some of them, like Will Clayton, worried that the setting up of European integration was a step back towards regionalism, almost a Schachtian sort of ger German type of regionalism, away from multilateralism, uh, which was uh, rather detrimental. It perplexed the British government that there was that uh, American support for European integration when the British had been beaten up during the war to say, you've got to stop this imperial preference, which Frank uh, said it was introduced in the early 1930s. They said, well, why is it the imperial preference a bad thing if now you're trying to force European integration, which is a form of customs union? To which the Americans said, imperial preference is wicked because it is preferential. A customs union it doesn't have preferential duties against one country against another. It's okay for you if you're trading within it, but it's not discriminatory. So there was a was discussion around those sort of levels um, after the war. Uh, Brexiteers might say, well, actually, we are more in tune with multilateralism and free trade. On the other hand, if we look at the United States of America at the moment, Donald Trump seems to me to be much more inclined to turn inwards towards protectionism rather than say we want completely open, open markets. And there, is a, there are endemic fears that Brexit and Trump's populism mark a backlash against globalisation. There's been a lot of literature by historians, by political economists about, about this going back uh, perhaps the last uh, decade or so, wondering whether the second great era of globalisation that we have lived in more recently would end like the first era of globalisation ended uh, after the First World War. It certainly looks as if now opposition to the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which was signed in February 2016, will now not be ratified. Clinton doesn't seem now to favour it. The European Union-United States Transatlantic Trade and Investment Partnership now doesn't seem to have many friends. And, of course, there's been the difficulties over the recent Canadian-European Union deal. I've got a big problem in writing the final chapter of my book on the economic governments of the world since 1933, in that I don't know if it's going to be the survival of the, of the institutions uh, set up after the Second World War or their complete demise. So um, I, I've got a sort of, sort of vested interest in, in what happens next week. I, I, I want to leave my chapter alone, that they survive. So there is a debate in the literature about whether or not we are indeed at, at a turning point. And there's been a recent um, 
survey by the Peterson Institute of Washington, which is a sort of uh, free trade think tank in, in Washington, uh, which is expressing concern that there is a turning point at the moment. And the uh, graph you have on the table is from their report, and they're saying that that last period with that horizontal uh, line with the two arrows on it is the longest period of stability in the ratio of world trade to output uh, that there is in that period going back to the 1960s. So they're saying that is a sign that globalisation has uh, peaked and what's going on here? Here we are. And they're also saying that there is a peaking in the flows of foreign direct investment. Uh, the blue bars are uh, trillions of dollars, if I can read it, yes. And the, uh, the key line is the, uh, the orangey-browny line, which shows that there has been a drop in the percentage of world GDP. Uh, FG, foreign direct investment is percentage of world GDP. So say again, that is uh, gone into reverse. They also say there's been a surge in micro-protection, or the sort of phytosanitary standards regulations that Frank was alluding to, that there has been a peak in the amount of labour-intensive commodities which can be outsourced. It's already gone as far as it can. There's no more growth in that area. The Chinese economy has slowed down. So they're presenting a rather negative picture. But I wonder if that is altogether right. Now let's look at this historically. Let's go back to the 1930s and see what has happened from 1929, the peak of the world economy after the First World War, and the months following on from that, and the months following on from the peak of the world economy in 2008, and the months following on from that. What I think the Peterson Institute is showing is that there's been a plateauing. It hasn't shown a drop. If you look at the, uh, the table or the graph on the world, uh, on the screen at the moment, this shows world industrial production for the 21 months after the peak. And you see the, uh, the line with, which continues at the bottom there. That is what happens after the Great Depression. And the reddish line is what happens after the Great Recession. You find their uh, recovery. These are figures from uh, Barry Eichengreen. That's industrial production. And you should see the same with the volume of world trade going back up again. So it doesn't look as if, from that data, that, that the period after the Great Recession is like the period after the Great Depression. The level of globalisation is still much higher than it ever was uh, in the past. It hasn't gone into reverse. Now, Frank said that there has not been a very large degree of um, historical memory in the debate over the European Union and Brexit and the free trade tariff reform debate. But in the debate over the Great Recession and the Great Depression, there has been. There's been constant reiteration of the past and the use of the past to justify mutually incompatible policy solutions. So Ben Bernanke, of course, wrote his PhD thesis on the history of the Great Depression. 
and said a mistake was made then, I'm not going to make it again, I'm going to have quantitative easing. Others, of course, would read Keynes, say, well, Keynes was, was right. So history is used constantly. And often, often misused, I, I would suggest. But one of the, the key differences between the two periods is, of course, that in 19, early 1930s, there, was, there were no multilateral institutions to provide a rules-based system. That was simply not present in the 1930s. 1933, the starting date of my book is the World Monetary and Economic Conference, held here in London, which completely failed. And when the G20 met in London in 2009, Gordon Brown and Barack Obama said, we're not going to fail like they failed uh, back there in the past. Multilateral institutions did provide a rules-based system, which was not present in the 1930s. And that explains part of that failure of world trade to collapse and continue to collapse. It stopped the beggar my neighbour competitive devaluation and uh, tariff uh, impositions, uh, which uh, happened in the 1930s. But I think we shouldn't become too optimistic about the outcome after the Great Recession compared with the Great Depression. Because one thing that historians such as Barry Eichengreen have pointed out in their comparison of the two um, episodes is that the policy response was sufficient to remove the need for <coughs> fundamental reform of the multilateral institutions. So there is the danger there that partial success could prevent a more major reform to allow globalisation to survive. In fact, I might argue that the big difference between the Great Recession and the Great Depression is the inadequacy of many of the policy responses that were followed after 2008. They were enough to put on a sticking plaster, something which is very much on my mind at the moment, uh, on the system, uh, but not to really mend uh, the, the, the problems. Let me take some of the ways in which critics, both of left and right, for different reasons, have, have said has been inadequate about the post-2008 response, which might then help explain some of the backlash which we were talking about and I agree with Dominic that the backlash has been from Middle England as much as from uh, the, the, the poor areas of the north. Uh, the first point is the use of quantitative easing, which Bernanke uh, said was the thing to do as a result of his study of uh, American banking policy and the Federal Reserve back in the 1930s. That, of course, has inflated equity prices. It's benefited the better off. So it's been benefiting perhaps those people in Middle England who have got their, got their equities, or people who, like me, are retired and have put their money into equities. If you are uh, not in that favourable position, then you might be losing. And that takes me to the second point, which is one of the comparisons I would make with the 1930s is that there was action in the 1930s on house debt. So if you look at the United States, uh, the Homeowners Loan Corporation in 1933 helped bail out the people who had lost from the fall in their house values. It wasn't bailing out the bankers. 
And I think that has been one of the differences. So you can imagine then why people with loss of equity in their property in America might lose out. No action in tightening up bank regulation. Glass-Steagall Act of 1933, repealed by Barack Obama, um, something which Bernie Sanders stressed very much should be brought back, the Dodd-Frank Act being weaker. No, no significant action on inequality as in the 1930s, both in Britain and in America. Those in work did better. There was quite substantial redistribution and higher marginal tax rates were introduced in America and welfare was introduced in Britain with a maintenance of high-ish high levels of redistributive taxation. So putting those points together, we could say that the policy response was sufficient to repeat a collapse of world trade and production of the 1930s, as I've shown you. Globalization survived, but a regrettable outcome was it removed the need for fundamental institutional reform, which could provide a more secure basis. In fact, it could arguably have weakened the situation in the longer run. And this is where I turn now to um, Danny Roderick's uh, approach of 2011. And Danny Roderick says that the fundamental political trilemma of the world economy is that we cannot simultaneously pursue, one, democracy, two, national determination, and three, economic globalization. That if we push globalization further, we have to give up either the nation state or democratic politics. If we are to maintain democracy, we have to choose between the nation state and international economic integration. Now, he was arguing that in 2011, and you could say that's exactly what has been going on over the Brexit debate. I've got five minutes left on my calculation. Uh, let me just very quickly sketch uh, a way in which one could look at this. If we go back to the world of Bretton Woods, of post-1944, and the reconstruction of a multilateral world economy after the war, it rested upon a trade-off between domestic and international concerns. There was another trilemma there. You would have fixed, interest, uh, fixed exchange rates, as on the gold standard, capital flows, and activist domestic policies. Okay? Now, before 1914, on the gold standard, going back to Frank's period, and in 1925 to 31, there were fixed exchange rates, and there were open capital markets. So you could not have an activist domestic economic policy. If you change your interest rates at home to affect employment, capital would just leave, and you couldn't allow the exchange rate to take the strain, which is what we're doing now, of course. So, you had to maintain that external exchange rates, and you had to allow capital flows, even if it meant inflation and unemployment and general strike. This leads to a backlash. It leads to the beggar my neighbour policies. It leads to the pursuit of domestic priorities, above all, at the expense of the international economy. So you've gone from international priority to domestic priority, which actually then led to the collapse of the world economy. 1944 is a balance. You have 
variable exchange rates on the Bretton Woods system, so there is some room for manoeuvre. You are allowed to have capital controls, and that then means you could have an activist monetary policy at home. It's what Roderick, Danny Roderick calls shallow multilateralism, allowing domestic welfare, domestic employment, and some opening up of trade, and some opening up of capital flows over time. Since 1973, and the end of Bretton Woods, the balance swung the other way, towards the pursuit of the international economy, the pursuit of finance at the expense of the domestic economy, with capital flows increasing, and what Roger calls hyper-globalisation. And it was that hyper-globalisation which then undermines that trade-off I was talking about between democracy, national determination, and economic globalisation. Now, if that argument is right, then you can see why people in the north of England losing their jobs can feel aggrieved, the same way some people in Middle England feel aggrieved that the nation-state has been undermined, we're, we're disempowered, and so on. What is the solution? Well, I don't very often turn to Larry Summers for the solution. Uh, but Larry Summers said there is a need to move from reflex internationalism to responsible nationalism. He said countries are expected to pursue their own citizens' economic welfare as a primary objective, but where their ability to harm the interests of citizens elsewhere is circumscribed. So it's almost like 1944. You look after your own citizens, but you must not allow it to harm citizens elsewhere. How must one how can one try and do that? Well, what I would try to argue in my book, if I ever manage to finish it after the, uh, I hope, the victory of Clinton next week, is that the lesson of the Great Depression was that the pendulum swung too far in the direction of domestic welfare. <coughs> the lesson of the Great Recession is that it swung too far towards globalisation without the ability to look after domestic welfare. What we need then is, like Frank was just saying a moment ago, to have, if you like, he said, tariff reform went with social reform. Well, in fact, the free traders, as he didn't point out, then went for old age pensions and went for social insurance and said, we too can offer you social reform. So what we need to show is that globalisation can also provide the social reform and the welfare, which will help everybody. And I have a number of bullet points, which I'm just going to tick off in the final two minutes. Two minutes. Um, and when I, I gave a version of this paper in uh, Durham in uh, the week of the referendum, I was told that I sounded like some man from the left. And it, um, in fact, it, virtually everything I said then has now been said by Theresa May. Um, the things we need to do are to balance the assertions of sovereignty with the requirement of global, global governance over things like climate change. We need to focus on international cooperation where we help achieve domestic objectives, for example, tax havens, the, the ability of the Googles or whatever to escape uh, taxation. To my mind, a much more important point than whether £350 million would come back for the National Health Service. Higher minimum wages and tax credits for working people to raise incomes at the bottom of the income distribution. Reform capitalism by reducing the role of finance, which certainly got too big and giving more weight to stakeholders other than shareholders, taxation of inheritance of wealth, 
the sort of redistribution, progressive taxation which uh, we had in the 1930s. And my, uh, that figure there, if I can just have 30 seconds, uh, just shows how, what an out, outliers the United States and United Kingdom are. Uh, one axis shows the percentage change in the top marginal tax rate. And the other one shows that the change in the uh, share of income held by the top 1%. US and UK there look right over to the right-hand side. Uh, that, that indicates why part of what is happening has been happening. Um, and there are other things which uh, people like Tony Atkinson have been talking about, like a sovereign wealth fund, such as was created in, in Norway, where we can't possibly have something like that. We don't have the oil revenues any longer. But the French, for example, in 2008 introduced a structural investment fund. So one could throw out all sorts of ideas, uh, which would be how to try and do that rebalancing uh, between the, if like, the internationalism and the domestic welfare. But I didn't hear any of that being talked about in the debate uh, by the people who wanted to stay in, who did not produce a sort of positive narrative that Frank talked about that our Edwardian counterparts put forward. Thank you.